This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with fingers crossed everybody knows the war is over everybody knows the good guys lost everybody knows the fight was fixed the poor stay poor the rich get rich that's how it goes everybody knows Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Wow, it's so great to be back. Just uh, uh, got back from a, a whirlwind tour of uh, the UK and then uh, was home for about a day, then on to Arizona covering the 20th International UFO Congress, where, uh, wow, what a collection of uh, interesting people all in one place. And there we were with a camera crew uh, busy filming uh, the uh, the episodes for the Conspiracy TV show. I hope you're getting a chance to watch that Friday nights at 11 p.m. Eastern on Vision TV. As they, you know, I always wanted to say this as a kid: check local listings. But I think in the uh, the GTA, it's Channel 60 on Rogers, and then on Bell TV, it's 261 and Shaw Direct 264. That's the Conspiracy Show uh, Friday nights at 11 p.m. Back to back episodes, and. Uh, Jeez, what you know? That's this uh, last Friday was the first time I actually had a chance to sit down and, and watch my my show because, as I say, I've been off uh, uh, on the road filming. But as I say, always great to be home in the the friendly, comfortable confines of my uh, my little radio stu- studio here at five fifty Queen Street uh, East. And uh, you know, just you come home and what do you want to see? You want to see family. And uh, across the glass from me is uh, is my radio family, Nelson Thal, media scientist and uh, assassination researcher. Nelson, good to see you. Thanks, for, thanks, Richard, and congratulations on uh, just the great job doing uh, yeoman service with the television show.
it's terrific. It, it, oh, getting some good feedback, and yeah, and, uh, yeah it looks it's okay. But uh, you know, the wife said, "I'm sick of looking at you." <laughs> <laughs> it's exciting. All right, uh, we have an exciting show t- tonight, and um, well, this is going to be uh, controversial and compelling to say the least. We are about to welcome. A writer, former U.S. government prosecutor, former Army intelligence officer, who is about to reveal how the U.S. government pre- pre- permitted the illegal entry of Nazis into North America in the years following World War II. And he'll also discuss how the United States Department of Justice obstructed Congress by blocking congressional investigations into famous American families who funded Hitler, who shall remain the Bush family. <laughs> and uh, he is, uh, as I say, former intelligence, uh, Army intelligence officer, president of the Intelligence Summit. And although not Jewish, he is president of the Florida Holocaust Museum. We'll find out about that as well. A great pleasure uh, to welcome John Loftus to The Conspiracy Show here on AM740. Hello, John. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for inviting me. We should also, of course, mention the latest book, America's Nazi Secret, An Insider's History, and uh, your your other, of course, seminal work, uh, The Secret War Against the Jews, How Western Espionage Betrayed the Jewish People. That came up, well, that's uh, about 16, 17 years ago, I think that came out. Yeah, and uh, my first one was uh, almost 30 years ago. So I've been done seven books in total. I've been around for a while. Well... You're, um, you, uh, you certainly are, and you're, you're uh, really doing the hard sledding, uh, I tell you, especially when it comes to this, the, this sort of topic. I mean, is there a lot of... How much heat do you take? I mean, you're former Army intelligence, and, uh, you know, not a lot of flattering things to say about, particularly about, you know, the treatment of the Jews at the hand of, uh, hands of various intelligence groups. How do you... Do you, do you get a lot of flack? No, you know what? It's funny. I get a lot of support from people left, right, and center because the truth is what it is. It doesn't belong to the Republicans or the Democrats. History belongs to us. And, you know, I just try and get the story straight. And, uh, you know, I'm an old prosecutor, so I'm kind of a stickler about evidence and and the the weight of evidence. And and, uh, I'm not really big on conspiracy theories, which is fun because I'm on your show. But, uh, um, well, you, you know, know, some of this stuff is, is so weird, Richard, you couldn't do it as fiction. But Sometimes it truth is stranger than fiction. Well, you know, as Jim Mars said, a conspiracy isn't always a theory. It's, it's oftentimes a crime, and that's what we're talking about here, uh, yeah. are crimes, right? So how did you become a president of the Florida Holocaust Museum? Oh, I was, uh, when I was a federal prosecutor, I handled the CIA cases and the Nazi war crimes cases. And then one day I realized that many of the Nazi war criminals I was supposed to prosecute were on the CIA payroll. Only the CIA didn't know that they were Nazi war criminals. And that there was yet another spy agency in Washington that worked with the British to plant these guys. And a hideous story of bureaucratic incompetence and negligence. And uh, and in some parts, uh, indifference to cruelty. I think people in our State Department and Justice Department should be very, very ashamed. They betrayed World War II veterans, the CIA, Congress. Uh, a lot of people think it's kind of funny when I say the CIA was betrayed. In those days, the CIA were the good guys. They were out trying to hunt Nazis. This other agency, hidden inside the State Department, where the secretary could disavow any knowledge of their operations. That group, called OPC, Office of Policy Coordinations, 
they recruited Nazis uh, to fight as proxy warriors during the Cold War against communism. Let me um, uh, dial it back to uh, the end of the Second World War, and then I want to work in our good friend Nelson Thal here. Uh, Operation Paperclip, the exfiltration of some key uh, key Nazis, <clears throat> many of whom were, in fact, uh, uh, convicted at the Nuremberg trials, and uh, somehow, I guess, their records were sanitized, and uh, they were uh, placed into positions of power in the United States. Uh, but the individual, of course, that um, has been cited as uh, providing uh, assistance to, uh, to Adolf Hitler during the war, uh, Prescott Bush, uh, charged uh, with uh, trading under the enemies or uh, under the trading with the enemies act. Uh, how much of what Prescott Bush was doing was simply inspired by you know sometimes you have to make that deal with the devil uh, because Hitler was a, you know uh, uh, perhaps seen as a, the best chance to to uh, to forestall the spread of communism or how much of it was in fact uh, perhaps uh, motivated by some, I don't know, some deep hatred of, of the Jews. I hate to say this, but it has nothing to do with either of those things. It would be so nice if we could say, well, these were people that had bad ideology or they believed in a bad cause. or, or they were, it, it was just all about greed. Um, and that's really hard for my friends on both the left and the right to accept. They did it for the money. Sharks swim in parallel lines, not because they're conspiring together, but because they're racing towards the smell of blood in the water. Um, Prescott Bush was a drunk, and he was put on the board of all these Nazi front companies by his father-in-law. And Herbert Walker, and uh, who was a Republican, and Averill Hammerman Hammer was a Democrat, and they believed that they could marry up Russian raw materials with German high-tech industry and make a huge profit. More importantly, since America had banned monopolies, trusts, and cartels, they could set up international, global monopolies, trusts, and cartels overseas. And these guys tried to buy three countries. And the one was uh, Germany, the second was Bolshevik Russia, and the third was what became the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And they made a profit on two out of three. But it was all about the profit. You know, at the same time these guys were funding Hitler, they were funding Stalin. They didn't believe in either one. Um, John, a um, couple of questions, uh, given given um, what you're saying, and and uh, certainly it's it's definitely the, the path that Jim Garrison was on. Um, May Brussel pointed out how he, at, at the end of the war, um, you know, Kramer was at the Pentagon, Galen's at the CIA, Von Braun's taken NASA, Mengele's at China Lake, California, maybe with a Cray computer and a uh, electron microscope, and um, uh, <clears throat> overall guidance of America's military, etc., is no longer in the hands of the elected uh, congressional members. Well, I, I loved May Brussels. There's a there's a coup d'état, as in Lutvak's book. You know what? I don't know that I saw all the evidence, but I saw a lot of the evidence, and and some of that stuff is just wrong. Um, there was a concerted effort to make a lot of money. There was a concerted a concerted effort to back. Um, Hitler, conservative effort to, uh, you know, bring up, uh, you know, the Bolsheviks and the Islamists. 
but I don't think that people get distracted with the Nazi scientists. I think that's an urban legend. You know, I went through all those files and found out that the guys that we got, the Americans got, were pretty much the dregs of the Nazi scientists because our British advisor who was telling us which scientists were important to select was Donald McLean. Donald McLean was actually a communist spy, and he was sending the best of the Nazi scientists to Russia, which is why the Russians had the better rockets and the best. The Russians got the rocket scientists. We got the bureaucrats. Well, Walter Dornberger, though, who was head of the Pinamundi project for Hitler, wound up as the vice president of Bell Helicopters, and the British... Yeah, something for which he had no training whatsoever. His thing was on fixed flight. But I mean, that, that's my example. You get a bureaucrat who doesn't have any real scientific knowledge. We had our, our rockets were blowing up on the pads. Our early helicopters were a disaster. But, but the interesting thing is... What did we is, get when we got the, the Dornbergs? Well, you the, know, not much. The British had told us after... Uh, the British, after Nuremberg, told the Americans that they should uh, execute Dornberger for his... Is what he did during World War II, and instead he wound up at Bell Helicopters with Michael Payne working for him, who's the guy who got Oswald into his job. So there's, it's, it, 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 we, there was a lot of damage done as a result of allowing a guy like Dornberger into the United States. And uh, I've been through all the damage assessments, and I can't find anyone in a Western intelligence agency that will agree that Dornberg was a key player. Hmm. Um, there were some key players, mostly the guys on the chemical weapons and biological weapons side. Now, those guys went straight to Britain after the war. We didn't get any of them. Uh, maybe the point is, you know, the uh, rather than trying to estimate uh, the damage or their competency, the yeah. fact that they were allowed into the United States uh, in the first place. Oh, amen. That's the horrible part. I mean, you know, at a time when American veterans returning home couldn't find jobs, we had... Uh, you know, Nazis who were supposed to be in prison uh, getting employment in America. And, um, you know, the, I guess my point is the net assessment of what they contributed to American science or American security was negative. They didn't help us, they hurt us. Yeah, I mean, th yeah, that wouldn't make me feel any better knowing that <laughs> no. knowing any, knowing that they helped us or helped the Americans. Uh, uh, but anyway, listen, we'll take a time out. Uh, John, stay put, Nelson. Sure. Uh, Nelson Thal here in studio. Uh, likewise, we'll come back and continue to delve into the secret war against the Jews, how Western espionage betrayed the Jewish people, and America's Nazi secret and insider's history with John Loftus here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And we're back with John Loftus, American author, former U.S. government prosecutor, former Army intelligence officer, president of the uh, Intelligence Summit, and uh, although not Jewish, as I said earlier, a president of the Florida Holocaust Museum, his latest book is America's Nazi Secret and Insider's History. Let me go back to, uh, to Prescott Bush uh, again. Uh, are we able to uh, sort of delineate whether or not he was still uh, helping to fund Hitler after we knew 
the West knew about uh, uh, concentration camps and the final solution? Yes. One of the sad things that we're going to be showing, there's a, a documentary film I've been volunteering on for the last four years, and it should be out this year. It's called American Secrets. And that will show from newly declassified records that um, Prescott Bush uh, was part of the industrial partnership that set up an industrial zone uh, in the Polish-Russian border areas, a place called Auschwitz. And they had canals to bring in Russian raw materials and the European and Russian rail lines are different sizes, so they had to find some place close to the border where the trains could meet and the barges could meet, and it had to be near where the coal fields were, because coal was used to be reprocessed under these new German chemical processes into aviation additives and other things, fuel additives. So Prescott Bush was the head of the Silesian American Coal Company. I mean, he owned the coal mines. He was the director of the company that supplied the coal to the Auschwitz-Birkenau facility. And, uh, you know, uh, for a long time, people were told, oh, look, you know, they they may have owned this company, but they got out as soon as the Nazis owned the war. That's not true. The records that we're going to show in the movie show that um, uh, these guys voted by proxy during the war. They kept control of the companies, that Auschwitz was actually a profit center for Wall Street. That's pretty odious. That's pretty That's odious. about as bad as you can yeah. get. Auschwitz is sort of the icon, is the lowest point in the history of the human race, and I can think of no place that's worse. Um, to have people that made a profit out of that is, is about as bad as you can get. How did Prescott Bush, I mean, uh, yes, he was charged under the Trading with the Enemies Act, but other than that, I mean, he had a pretty successful career in Congress, as I recall. I mean, he just, he walked away pretty well unscathed, did he not? Yeah, I think he was sort of the the, the, the test dummy. They wanted to see if he could get elected to something without um, getting arrested, then the rest of the industrialists could go on about their business. Um, and, uh, you know, Prescott Bush should have been indicted. He should have been thrown in jail for treason, because under our Constitution, treason is defined as giving aid and comfort to the enemy in time of war. Aid and comfort means financial aid and comfort, among other things. And he certainly did that. Yeah, John, um, there's couple of uh, interesting... Uh, Dave Emery is carrying on the work of May Brussel, and... Um, Dave's a good guy. And yeah. he, he talks a lot and follows in the May Brussel school, uh, the Nazi connection to the JFK assassination, et cetera, et cetera. Um, can you fill us in on where you think that whole thing fits into uh, Penn Jones and Sherman Skolnick's and Jim Garrison's you know, view you're about the wrong guy. I'll tell you what I told May. I love May. We talked just about every week. Yeah. But uh, I don't think there was that connection. I mean, I grew up in Boston. Uh, JFK was my hero. And when I was down those classified vaults, and I was one of the very few people in U.S. government history that had enough security clearances to look at virtually anything I wanted. And I got to look at all the JFK files. So there's a few things in there that haven't come out, but. Um, I don't think there's any there there. It's alleged that uh, Hillary Clinton sanitized those files during the Watergate. Uh, any? <laughs> did no. you have you ever heard any evidence of that or seen her name on the docket? No, no. And you know what? You, you can't sanitize microphone. It can't be done. Interesting. Now, uh, <clears throat> you know, Nelson is, of course, uh, uh, one of our preeminent JFK assassination researchers, and and uh, that's a particularly um, 
you know, rich vein to be mined. And uh, but I'm gonna I'm gonna dial it back again to. Uh, well, there is one classified okay. story about the JFK assassinations yes. that uh, that I, I did find is that uh, you know um, so maybe afterward, you know, what happened was Oswald hung around with a lot of guys who had been quite frankly drummed out of the intelligence community. JFK was instituting the uh, quiet broom sweeping and getting rid of getting going to get rid of Alan Dulles. Uh, in fact, before he died, he said, I'm going to take the CIA and put it into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. So some of these guys were sitting around in Dallas going, you know, somebody ought to shoot that son of a gun, Kennedy. And uh, Oswald said, okay, I'll do it. And no one took him seriously except one guy, and that was uh, George DeMorenshield. And George called his local CIA contact and uh, said, I think this guy Oswald is serious. He's going to try and take a shot at Kennedy. Now, his local CIA contact, you're not going to believe this, but I have, do I have a George DeMarnshill's phone book? It's available to anyone for the National Archives. He called Poppy Bush. Bush was the, the senior was his CIA contact. And Bush did, did the right thing. He called uh, the local FBI office, and this is the famous missing FBI mail, the the memo that J. Edgar Hoover ordered torn up was from Bush to the FBI saying, we believe a man named Lee Harvey Oswald may make an attempt on the president's life during his upcoming visit to Dallas. And to save the Bureau's reputation, Hoover ordered that memo shredded. And, of course, that gave Bush all the blackmail he needed to bury his family's secrets with the FBI and, and take care of his political ascension. Mm-hmm. Now... Um, Shield later had a fit of conscience, and he was going to come and testify before Congress and saying, look, we were professional spies. You know, uh, if we were going to kill the president, we wouldn't have the assassin, you know, hanging around with us so openly. The one guy we did hang around with was him, and Shield would have pointed to one guy in the Warren Commission, and that was Alan Dulles, because Shield's dad and Shield himself smuggled Nazi oil for Alan Dulles. Okay, they were in it for the money. Dulles was incredibly corrupt. And um, so anyway, well, George DeMorenshield left Dallas. He was on his way to Washington to testify. He was found hung in a, his motel room on the way there. He never made it. So the joke in the intelligence community is there was a conspiracy to kill someone in Kennedy, but it was DeMorenshield, not Kennedy. And DeMorenshield's partner is is um, Mohammed Al uh, Fayed, who's uh, Dodi's father. No, you got to go to a real stretch for that. The the DeMorenshield family comes from the old um, Nobel Oil Company of Russia, and a lot of America's finest families were invested in that, and that's why, quite frankly, they backed the Bolsheviks. They wanted to play both sides of the fence in case the Tsar fell. Uh, they wanted that oil. Um, that's where most of the influence came. So from the Nobel Oil Company, the, the grandfather, DeMornschild, went to work for Nazi intelligence, and his son and his grandson then went to work for uh, German and then French intelligence. Could you tell us a little bit about the Jew room at the NSA that you reveal in your book, oh. and, and who's behind the conspiracy against the Jews, do you think? Well, what, I think it's very simple. If Moses had turned right, and settled in Kuwait, America would have made Israel the 51st state. It's all about oil. Um, you know, it's, 
the American people supports Israel, and we keep electing congressmen and senators that send more of our tax dollars to Israel than any other place on the planet. But the problem is that our intelligence community, particularly our State Department, uh, says whatever we might say about liking Jews in public, it really is in America's national interest to obtain a cheap and consistent supply of oil. The Arabs have it, the Jews don't. It's as simple as that. So again, it's not about bigotry or conspiracy. It's about oil. It's about money. It's about greed. And um, as the uh, oil deals kept building and building and building, the impetus for betraying Israel to suck up to the Arabs kept growing and growing. So basically, in every war that Israel fought, American intelligence fought with the Arabs because they had the oil. And one of the nastiest things we did was we... uh, wiretapped pretty much every major Jewish leader in America. But here's the nasty part. This is how we did it, and I know this is true because it was censored out of my book. We let British intelligence use American computers to bug American citizens, and the Americans use British computers to bug British citizens. So each side can truthfully swear that they're not spying on their own people. They're not. They're just trading information. And the Jew Room was a nickname for a facility in the Washington area where they concentrated on getting the dirt of, you know, American Jews who supported Israel and trading that information back to the Arabs to expose them. A very cynical betrayal, a complete violation of the Bill of Rights. And it's a loophole that my own Justice Department created when they were doing the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act during the Carter administration and the early Reagan administration, um, the Justice Department came up with a clever way to keep this going. They actually added two words, uh, three words, to uh, a piece of legislation that changed its meeting around, and Congress never caught on. And so it permitted the old con game of the British using American facilities to bug Americans and so on. That game went on and on and on. But every time any American Jew picks up the phone and calls Israel, trust me, your call is recorded. All calls are recorded, I guess. That's what people understand. Every time you make a a long-distance call, or even nowadays, even a medium-distance call, it goes through a microwave relay tower. Microwaves are like radio waves that can be collected by satellites and ground stations. Every microwave communications thing on Earth is recorded every day. We call it the vacuum cleaner approach. That doesn't invade your privacy. What invades your privacy is when we tell the computer where all these terabytes of information are stored is to go search through them all and pick out the sound of your name or any conversation in which uh, Jew and uh, uh, financing is is made or um, Arab and terrorism. And the computers can do that. They're very, very efficient. But in this age of technology, I'm afraid the the Bill of Rights is just a quaint footnote. All right, we'll take another time out. And uh, I guess after this uh, broadcast, Nelson, your dossier, my dossier, John Loftus' dossier, will uh, over at the NSA or, or elsewhere, will will uh, thicken even more by a few pages. All right, uh, John Loftus is with us as we talk about the secret war against the Jews and America's Nazi secret here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. 
Hey, your portal to The Conspiracy Show is www.richardserrett.com, S-Y-R-E-T-T, richardserrett.com. There you'll find all the information you need on upcoming shows. There's a past uh, show audio archive, and uh, there's a secret document page, a book club. Uh, John Loftus, uh, his two books uh, that we mentioned tonight uh, will be up there shortly. And I should also mention, as we're talking uh, websites, the website uh, for the TV show, theconspiracyshow.com, is online, so I encourage you uh, to, uh, to check it out. Of course, we look for your feedback after each and every show that airs Friday nights at 11 p.m. on Vision TV. And this week's uh, programs, two back-to-back half hours, electronic harassment, and in the second half, in the second episode, we'll uh, talk about an actual or reported case of authentic demonic possession. That's uh, coming up on The Conspiracy Show, the television version. Here we are on the radio with Nelson Thal in studio, our media scientist, former archivist for the great late Marshall McLuhan, and on the phone, John Loftus. Uh, John, let's uh, again back to the Second World War. And uh, what can you tell us about... uh, Standard Oil and uh, their connection with IG Farben and the production of Zyklon B, etc. I mean, I, I don't know if this is an area necessarily of your... Uh, oh, no, it's something I'm very interested yeah. in because uh, the, uh, prior to World War II, uh, the robber barons of Wall Street, these rich, old, corrupt people that had, had monopolies in America and then were beaten up by Teddy Roosevelt, wanted to take all their money out of Wall Street and move it into Germany, Russia, in Saudi Arabia, and that uh, the flow of capital going out was what caused the Great Depression of 1929. Um, These were guys that bought the stock of the German corporations. The German currency was worthless, but German patent rights were priceless, and the way to buy the patent rights was to buy the corporate stock. And so an influx of American gold, American dollars, 70% of the money that went to rebuild the Third Reich came out of Wall Street. And one of the things they funded was uh, insecticide research at IG Farben. And one insecticide turned out to be extremely toxic to human beings. And so, of course, they kept testing that. And um, the, uh, the all three of the so-called G series of nerve gases came out, Siren, Samon, and Toban. And um, that's what both the USSR and the Western Allies used as our chemical warfare stockpiles. And the only reason was that this stuff is so toxic that a drop of it on your skin would kill you. And they knew how precise the dosages were because they tested them in a special gas chamber at Auschwitz. The Auschwitz gas chambers were the only ones in the world that had a pressurized gas chamber where they could test these new experimental gases on human beings and measure their lethal effect. And so when the war was over, the camp doctor that did the testing, Dr. Mengele, um, t- you know, buried his uh, test results and later traded them to the British in return for his freedom. The British smuggled them out through the Vatican rat line down to Latin America, uh, where he lived out the rest of his life. Did any of this information, let's say the the Rockefeller connection to Zyklon B production, did that any of that ever come out during, let's say, the Nuremberg trials? No. See, what happened is Franklin Delano Roosevelt planned a special part of the Nuremberg trials called the Bankers' Trial, 
and he wanted to have all the German bankers point the fingers at the Wall Street bankers, bankers that funded them. And so then Roosevelt could arrest, you know, half of Wall Street for treason and destroy the funding base of the Republican Party. It was a, a great political coup, but the problem was he never told his vice president, Harry Truman. And when Roosevelt died, Truman didn't know about the A-bomb, and he didn't know about the banker's trial. And unfortunately, the, the lawyers for all the corrupt American investors did, and um, they hid the witnesses from the Nuremberg trials. All those British and American banking officials and corporate officials that actually worked in Berlin during World War II to make sure the investors' money was safe. None of those guys were ever prosecuted. You know, it's interesting uh, listening to you, John, and, and what occurs to me, you were mentioning that, you know, for all of the commotion about the exfiltration of, uh, of Nazi scientists uh, and, and whether or not they were effective uh, uh, it seems to me that that, that mindset uh, obviously existed within the United States on Wall Street. There was no need to bring, you know, to import it. Uh, so I, I guess when we talk about, you know, America's Nazi secret, um, I mean, how much, how much of the, uh, the, the Wall Street mindset, in fact, was adopted by the Third Reich rather than the other way around? I think you have it exactly that um, the Third Reich adopted the Wall Street mindset. In fact, Hitler's financial advisor, Helmut Schacht, was born in Brooklyn, and uh, he knew how the Wall Street game was played. That uh, the real reason we started bringing Nazi people in for intelligence, you know, quite frankly, they weren't that good. If they were any good, they would have won the war, especially on the Eastern Front. But we brought them in because the lawyers wanted to wrap these corporate crimes in a shroud of national security. And that's what happened. You know, they uh, put all these, these top-secret stamps on top of the files showing Nazi financial collaboration because they said, we need to hire these Nazis to fight the Cold War. We need to hire these Nazi scientists to put a man in the moon. And it was all a lie. We didn't need them at all. Uh, <clears throat> John, when you... Um uh, take a look at the people who've been at the top levels of the American government, people like Kissinger, Wolfowitz, <clears throat> etc., especially Kissinger. Then you look at the bankers, you've got the Rothschilds, uh, and uh, the Wall Street brokers, uh, you've got the, uh, they're Jewish as well. And so you start to see how people wonder about... Um, Who's really in control? And when they look around and they look at the bank, biggest bankers, biggest brokers, everywhere they take a look, they see. They look at Hollywood, which has a profound influence on our on the mindset of Americans. And there again, they see all, all Jews. Well, like, what what do you what is the grammar behind that? And what's going on well, there? Well, I have to challenge your assumptions. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a you know a common wisdom is that Jews control the media in America, right? That's right. Okay, ninety percent of newspapers are owned by uh, Republican Protestants. Ninety percent. Okay. Okay. They own the Republican Protestants own the newspapers, the publishing houses, the corporations that own the media groups, and they own the funding companies that control the studios. Now you may find. You know, Jews in the second, third, and fourth tier levels, but they don't own that stuff. I think the myth of the powerful Jewish lobby is just a myth. So they're really front men. No, 
like uh, Michael Eisner's, if, would you say, you know, they're, they're, they're really not uh, <clears throat> the owners as they're purported to be. They're just uh, front men for the owners? Yeah, I mean, it's syndicates put up the money to fund films. The, the studios generally don't have sufficient funding anymore to, to underwrite their own movies. Maybe they did at one point where filmmaking was cheap, but no more. You know, filmmaking is first and foremost a financial industry, and um, that's in the control of the same people it always was. Yeah. And in the, the canard about Hollywood being run by Jews is uh, not supported by evidence I've ever seen. John, thank Again, you. maybe I haven't seen all the evidence. I'm pretty good at intelligence stuff, but I don't claim to be omniscient. No, but thank you for, 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 uh, you know, for challenging that long-held sure. assumption and laying, laying that bare. You know, there's a... I want to get back again. To, uh, I, I keep, I keep, I hate to keep harping on the Bush family, but uh, uh, I mean, let's face it. They are, you know, and I do too. But I have to say that uh, I try and be even-handed about it. You can't blame the the current President Bush because his grandfather bought Nazi stocks any more than you can blame Jack Kennedy because his dad bought Nazi stocks. But the people need to know is that Joe Kennedy bought his Nazi stocks from Prescott Bush. Ah, the, the, Bush, the Bush family was. Instrumental with the Walkers and the Harrimans mm. in setting up this whole sewer of investment into the Third Reich. And there's a culpability there that cannot be issued. They have to shoulder that responsibility. Well, I, I guess why that, that leads into my question, and that is, I mean, has anyone ever had the temerity to bring this up with, with, with uh, George Bush 1, or 41, let's oh, call sure. it? sure, yeah. I've had princes that repeat and said, oh, no, no, that, that never happened. It was, you know, my dad is, you know, no, 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 we, we are, you know. And the sad thing is that I think that with each passing Bush generation, they know less and less about their own ancestry. But how are they perceived? You know, there's a, the, that old um, uh, Russian joke about, um, you know, because Stalin was, you know, the greatest anti-Semite of all time, and that, uh, uh, the, what is the joke, that, that Hitler was simply a petty tyrant who lived in the time of Stalin. Oh, it's a Russian saying, exactly. Yeah. Hitler so, was a petty tyrant who lived in the time of Stalin. So I'm, so I'm wondering how the, uh, how Prescott Bush, for example, uh, is, is, uh, Remembered, or even the current, you know, Bush uh, regime, guilty perhaps by association, but still the association exists. How they are perceived by um, Israeli Jews, uh, uh, non-Israeli Jews? I think they they, uh, just don't trust them. But then, you know, the Israelis understand that America, the American people, love them and support them, but the American government is on the side of the Arabs. They understand that dichotomy, and they're used to it. The, um, Nelson, go ahead, uh, jump in. Just a quick one. John, um, just blue skying it here. In all your research, have you ever um, seen any evidence about the idea that's been floated that uh, <clears throat> Prescott Bush is part of a Himmler-Lebensborn program and his real name was George Sheriff? No, never saw any evidence of that. As far as I can tell, um, that the the Bush family was simply had some economic and familial connections with the Pennsylvania Railroad, and there's a few lines that cross there. But uh, I think that it was Herbert Walker 
who actually founded the firm Brown Brothers Harriman. And that was the principal investment house that took the Wall Street money and plowed it into the Third Reich and plowed it into the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, George, there's a, a, a writer called Greg Hallett who's written about Hitler and Operation Winnie the Pooh, which was supposed to be the code name that Ian Fleming gave to the program to get Hitler to Spain through a submarine and then on to South America. Any In all your travels and behind the scenes, I mean, I, I'm sure this is locked away in other places or not around, but I'm, did you ever... Fleming's submarine to Spain thing did happen, but not with Hitler. It had to do with the King of England. The man that gave up the throne to marry the woman he loved. Well, that was the cover story. But King uh, Edward VIII was actually a pro-Nazi supporter of Hitler. And he was forced to abdicate because the British Secret Service wiretapped him, making deals with a Nazi ambassador in London. Interesting. But there was they were afraid that, uh, you know, so the king was forced to abdicate. And then the next thing he did was they gave him a job as a general to inspect the Maginot Line. He actually sold the Maginot Line plans to the Nazis. And the, they intercepted communications where he and Wallace Ms. Simpson were planning to move to Germany because Hitler had promised to make him the first fascist king of England. And so the British wanted to just get him out of Spain before he goes there, put him on a submarine, get him down to the Bahamas and keep him there for the war. Now, the J. Edgar Hoover wrote to Roosevelt's attorney general, those are the files I saw, this is how I came into it. And Roosevelt said, this king is such a dangerous Nazi agent, we can't let him go running around free in the Bahamas during the war. We've got to put him in prison. But, you know, Churchill said, hey, come on, he's a former king, what are we going to do? All right, uh, John, stay with us. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show after this time. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. Richard Serrett with you, Nelson Thal on the other side of the glass, media scientist and, uh, of course, the man behind uh, Shock Talk with Bloom and Steel. Nelson, how do people listen to that? www.bloomandsteel.com B-L-O-O-M-A-N-D-S-T-E-E-L-E.com And, of course, the lovely Miss Steele is uh, sitting behind you, uh, remaining uh, silent tonight, but uh, you can hear her along with Lenny Bloom on uh, Shock Talk with Bloom and Steel. On the phone from uh, the great state of Florida, John Loftus, American author, former U.S. government prosecutor, former Army intelligence officer. We're talking about... Uh, well, two books, really. Uh, the Secret War Against the Jews, How Western Espionage Betrayed the Jewish People, and also uh, his latest book, America's Nazi Secret, An Insider's History. Uh, moving on from World War II, uh, you, um, you note in your book, The Secret War Against the Jews, this popular notion of uh, the birth of Israel being very romantic, and the, uh, you know, the UN was supported by these uh, sympathetic Western democracies, which uh, would go on to vote and create the first Jewish state in over 2,000 years, but that's not exactly the way it happened, is it? No, no, what happened is that um, the, you know, democratic Western states had enough votes to 
get a majority to create the state of Israel, but they were nowhere close to the two-thirds vote they would need for the partition of Palestine into an Arab and Jewish state. So uh, what happened is the uh, early Zionist intelligence agents went to Nelson Rockefeller, and they dumped a bunch of files in his desk. And Nelson had been a, a very bad boy during World War II. It was a lot of his money that went through Brown Brothers Harriman to be invested in the Third Reich. And, uh, you know, the Zionists told Nelson what they wanted. They wanted him to change every vote in Latin America, which Nelson could do. Nelson Rockefeller was the American intelligence coordinator for Latin America during World War II. He knew everybody, and he, his, he alone had the money to, you know, revive those economies. So uh, Nelson said, all right, you know, but uh, you have to keep your mouth shut about all the Nazis and the Nazi money that's going to go to South America. He said, you can have vengeance, or you can have a country, but you can't have both. Anyway, in three days, Nelson and Rockefeller turned, out, turned around every vote in Latin America, except Cuba. They all either voted to create the state of Israel, or they abstained, which is just as necessary to reach the two-thirds majority. And uh, so that's how the state John, of Israel was born. John, when you say the Zionists, do you mean the, um, uh, the, the Jewish establishment? Or yeah, I mean, the, the people that were working for the Zionist dream to create, recreate the Jewish homeland. Uh, you know, a lot of people say the Jewish homeland was extinct, but actually they were Jews that were a majority of the population of Jerusalem for the previous 2,000 years. There sure. were Jews living in the West Bank and in Gaza and a lot of other places. But, you know, compromises have to be made. You, John, you also point out in the book that also a key to securing those U.N. votes was uh, uh, David Ben-Gurion. Uh, using a blackmail uh, to obtain, uh, you know, UN f- favor, uh, a UN vote in favor of Israel. But, but, but you point out what is very crucial to understand, and that is uh, what those who were being blackmailed were being were, were keeping secret. Yeah, I mean the uh, the blackmail was about those Americans like Rockefeller who had funded Hitler, and Rockefeller was in the Third Reich up to his eyeballs. Now, for example, the uh, nowadays in Europe, the wealthiest conglomerate is the ThyssenKrupp Corporation. Uh, Thyssen was the family that had all the steel for the Third Reich. Krupp made all the arms for the Third Reich from the Thyssen steel. Um, and Nelson Rockefeller's bank, the Chase Manhattan Bank, secretly owns, uh, what was it, uh, uh, 32% of ThyssenKrupp. So they, that's how big their investment was in Nazi Germany. And sometimes you had companies like IG Farben that had interlocking stock exchange agreements with Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company. And these weren't just comp companies, right? These are huge conglomerates. Oh, enormous conglomerates, yeah. Um, and there was one point where the, uh, there was actually a good guy in justice under Roosevelt, and he went screaming into Standard Oil headquarters and said, look, you know, we're going to... Uh, put you guys in prison for treason if you keep chilling with the Nazis anymore. And the guy said, look, you leave us alone, or we will guarantee you there'll be no oil for D-Day. And he meant it. He could organize a worldwide oil boycott just at the time in the war when America needed it the most. So uh, the Justice Department then arranged a wimp-out deal. They got a slap on the wrist. I think the, the head of the company was given a token fine of one week's pay for betraying everybody in America during World War II. 
Good deal. Indeed. <laughs> what did Ben-Gurion have on the royal family? It wasn't Ben-Gurion that had it in the royal family. Ben-Gurion really disliked the British because he knew that um, they, the British wanted nothing to do with Israel. They, they made good speeches in public, but that was all. Um, the British had actually, the British Secret Service had hired an Arab Nazi Muslim organization, still around, called the Muslim Brotherhood. You read about them nowadays in, in Egypt um, and other countries. But the Muslim Brotherhood was the Arab Nazi party. They fought for the Third Reich after the war. The British Secret Service hired all the Arab Nazis and used them as a proxy army to overthrow the infant state of Israel. And in fact, um, a lot of the German fighter, German-made fighters, the Messerschmitts, that uh, flew against. Uh, uh, well, a lot of the the pilots inside the battle with Israel were actually British pilots flying foreign-made planes. And, and, uh, and what about the the royal family's uh, desire to secure a, a separate peace with the Third Reich? Oh, I think that um, there were many people in Britain in the upper classes. They call it the Cliveden set uh, around the Astors, and uh, uh, you know that were quite frankly fascists. They didn't call it fascism; they had a polite name for it. It was called corporatism. <laughs> the, the, the people were just too ignorant to really choose their own destinies, that it would always have to be a ruling class. And the ruling class would be the leaders of corporations because they would emerge and be chosen by the fact that they made huge and obscene profits. So they obviously had the skill to run large things. And, you know, and this was, the, corporatism was, meant that many people in the British upper classes absolutely adored Mussolini. Hitler, they thought, a bit uncouth. But they still like the concept just the same. And to what extent uh, is the the present uh, queen uh, trying to keep a, a lid on this damage control? Oh, I think the royal family has a lot to be ashamed of in terms of damage control. One of the worst things that happened after World War II, there was a, uh, a whole treasure trove of Nazi documents from members of the British royal family. The American intelligence people found them and said, uh, what are we going to do with these? Give them back to the British. Well, the guy that was sent to, from Britain to pick up the uh, uh, documents was, was it Guy Burgess? Yeah, uh, one of the, uh, the, the Cambridge Five, another double-agent communist spy. He pretended to be a Nazi. He covered up all the royal family's Nazi files. They kept him on the payroll. Well, the tragedy is because the Cambridge Five, the communist double agents who pretended to be Nazis, who pretended to be, you know, British conservatives, because they were allowed to go on. Um, that's how it was betrayed to the Russians that Harry Truman would not use the A-bomb in North Korea. And once that information was relayed to China, China then knew it was safe to invade. So, you know, even years later, we still have this horrible situation in North Korea because of that British betrayal. I can just hear Prince Philip saying, curse those Nazis and their meticulous file-keeping. <laughs> yeah, they were efficient in that. But then all intelligence files are. It's a historian's dream. You know, I'm a, a criminal prosecutor. I love to have these kinds of detailed records, but uh, for historians, they are absolutely amazed to find all the records that were kept. Actual voice recordings and wiretaps of meetings. This stuff is, is just wonderful. But the problem was that the British Secret Service tricked the American intelligence into signing a 75-year time ban. 
that any joint intelligence files we shared from World War II or later have to be subject to the British rule of 75 years after it's classified, that's when you can get released. Because the British want to make sure that all their spies are conveniently dead before this stuff hits the newspapers. So around about 2015 to 2025, I'm going to start to become very popular. Yes, indeed. Uh, John, the, you're, you're, the, of course, conspiracy doesn't end with the final chapter of your book. It, it, it moves on. Can you give us some idea, like, where is it going to go in the future? And um, how, um, how uh, what will happen in, in this conspiracy against the Jews? How do you see it uh, playing itself out, given world geopolitics? Well, one of the things that I wrote about in my new book, America's Nazi Secret, and by the way, I should explain that what happened is I've been under secrecy agreements for 30 years, and they, that meant that all of my books had to be submitted back to the U.S. government for censorship. Well, after 30 years, the clock is over, and all the things that were censored out, I get to put back in. So I took one of my early books, The Belarus Secret, as the, the core of it, and the, the new introduction very lengthy shows what was censored out of that book. And then the, the epilogue at the back shows all the things that were censored out of my other seven books, and why they're important today. And one of the things that's most important today is this old concept of the Arab Nazi group. Remember I talked about how the Arab Nazis were hired by the British to crush the infant state of Israel. That didn't work out well. And Nasser threw all the Arab Nazis out of Egypt and banned the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, Alan Dulles uh, relocated the Muslim Nazis into Saudi Arabia. And the Saudis gave them jobs as school teachers. So young men like Osama bin Laden literally had World War II Nazi Arabs as school teachers. And it was a perfect storm of Nazi racism and Saudi religious bigotry. The Saudis follow something called Wahhabism, which is a, a classic heresy against Islam there, to just to the, to the right of everybody. But, uh, and then. Uh, and the idea was that the Americans would secretly control the Muslim Brotherhood because they would be our proxy army to fight the Arab communists in the Cold War. One of those stupid, silly ideas that kept getting, keep getting um, brought back. And then it was, um, the CIA never knew, of course, what was happening, but it was Vice President Bush, who had also been head of CIA, his family knew about the Nazi connections, and it was he in... 81 when Reagan came in, that asked the Muslim Brotherhood to recruit the next generation of Islamic extremists, the Mujahideen, to fight a war against the Russians in Afghanistan. So the CIA didn't know who was on the payroll, because Vice President Bush arranged for the CIA money to be laundered through the Saudis and the Pakistani intelligence services. And that's how we paid you know, the Muslim Brotherhood guys who recruited bin Laden and his guys. Um, we had this, we were on both sides of the war at the same time. So would you say, like, for instance, today, Farrakhan is a is a Im- important uh, uh, cell, uh, with a foreign military cell within the United States and a threat no, to it? No, that's a good question, because Farrakhan's group are not Muslims. It's a unique American group of bigots, but they're not fairly not Muslims. They use the word Muslim in their name, but they're not. Um, the the Muslim prison cells are being recruited by a guy whose name was Alamudi, and uh, he was the head of the recruiting uh, 
Muslim chaplains for American prisons. And, of course, the chaplains that he were picking for the prisons were Islamic terrorists. Mm -hmm. And so they were recruiting black extremists in the prisons, converting them to this other heretical group of of Islam. Um, And uh, Alamudi, by the way, was funded by a guy named Grover Norquist, whose buddy is Karl Rove. Rove and Norquist said they could use the... Arab vote in the United States to offset the Jewish vote for the Democrats. And, and that's, mm, that, and that's, that's how... Mm-hmm. Dave, and of course that's connected to the uh, to these Nordgren, to, to Tiger Woods and his and, and his wife. Um, you know... Ellen you know, Nordgren. I, and, I, and I, the I don't know anything about that. I'm yeah. sorry. It's, uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty good at the intelligence stuff and in the old histories, but... When you get to Tiger Woods, you lost. <laughs> <laughs> All right, another show. All yeah. right, uh, John, stay okay. with us. Nelson, stay put as well. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show here on AM740. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. composed uh, by Jeff Eden. Jeff Eden, E-D-E-N. Jeff's a good friend of the, the, uh, the program and uh, kindly offered uh, to, uh, to compose a new piece of music. So that is now instituted as our second hour theme uh, here on The Conspiracy Show. Thank you to Jeff. And uh, Jeff has a, a recording studio in town uh, out in the West End. I think it's uh, Mississauga. It's called Studio 8. So uh, I've also put a link to Jeff's studio on my homepage at richardserrett.com. If it's not up yet, it will be soon. Uh, anyway, again, thanks to Jeff for that wonderful piece of music. John Loftus stays with us for the full two hours. This uh, a topic obviously is that important. We could do uh, weeks and weeks of shows on uh, the secret war against the Jews and, of course, America's Nazi secret. John, of course, is a former U.S. government prosecutor, former Army intelligence officer, president of the Intelligence Summit. What is the Intelligence Summit, John? Well, I put together a group of, um, you know, a lot of retired intelligence officers from around the world, from the Democratic countries, and we try and meet with press and members of the public and get to say, hey, look, you know, history is a very complex thing, and to understand it well, you need to know that one-third of modern history is missing because it's classified. And so the Intelligence Summit was dedicated to legally bringing out um, the truth about history, not like WikiLeaks, just stealing files at random that, you know, I think caused a lot of harm to people. The, the harm they've done is far away the good. 
but uh, I think the the intelligence summit was a you know we'd have both liberals and conservatives and meet and debate these issues. It was a lot of fun. Of course, it drove the State Department crazy, and they organized an international boycott of our charity. It's sort of like a shop talk for intelligence agents, and they drop their everybody yeah, changes and their name. People like you guys. You, you, yeah. The next time I have one of these, you'll have to come because it would be nice for you to sit down with the people that were actually there doing these programs. Yes, it would be. It would be uh, very, very informative. Uh, yeah. John, yeah, we, we'd, we'd all change our names. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we, uh, the last uh, segment we talked about, uh, you know, the, uh, the the formation of the state of Israel and the UN vote and how those votes were uh, obtained. Uh, let's move on to immediately following that. Of course, we had a series of Arab-Israeli conflicts. How would you characterize the the role of American or the Anglo-American intelligence groups in? the various Arab-Israeli conflicts starting in 48, 67, 73? Um, neutral in favor of the Arabs is the best that we ever were. But sometimes we were openly supportive. Even as far back as World War II, uh, we knew that American and uh, oil corporations were smuggling oil out to Mexico and the Caribbean to Spain for Nazi Germany. And we knew it. And the British Secret Service asked Roosevelt's permission to come to Wall Street and kill people. And he said, yes. So there actually were assassination teams. This was also censored out of my previous books. That's why this is fun now. America's Nazi secret, all this stuff comes out. That there were British Secret Service guys throwing American stockbrokers out windows because they were behind selling oil to Nazi Germany. Um, and it was always all about oil. If you read one of the great economist books, The, the Prize, um, it all comes down to the same things, that you know, energy is the most valuable commodity in the world. And the manipulation of it uh, by the Nazis was paramount to the way America's energy policy and foreign policy were structured. I mean, we were always on the side of the Arab dictators because, you know, they would sell us the oil cheaply. And, uh, you know, Israel didn't have it. And uh, that, uh, that relationship, uh, the, the Anglo-American intelligence uh, role continued uh, 67, 73, uh, beyond? Is that oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think uh, I saw recently uh, that uh, President Obama asked the State Department to send an envoy to Egypt to tell Mubarak to step down. The envoy they sent was Frank Wisner. <laughs> Now, Frank Wisner's daddy was the guy that brought the Arab Nazi movement to America. And what Wisner did was to tell Mubarak not to step down, that he was indispensable towards keeping the peace. And Frank Wisner's firm, by the way, you should know, has deals with the uh, all the Egyptian uh, you know, uh, military corporations. They make their money off keeping uh, Mubarak in power. So, you know, Obama was kind of furious when all of a sudden he realized the State Department had done the exact opposite of what he ordered them to do. But it was one of those happy things in, in circumstance where Obama told the White House to skip the State Department and get the word out to the Egyptians by tweet that we did not support Mubarak's remaining in office. And that was the so-called tweet heard around the world. 
stateside, I, we, I mentioned the Arab-Israeli conflicts, but stateside in the 60s, of course, many Jews were very active in the U.S. civil rights movement. Uh, and for that, uh, they were labeled a potential, if not actual, subversives. Uh, talk to me about uh, the electronic surveillance of Jews under the Nixon administration. You know, Nixon was a funny guy. Um, he was raised as a child by a very anti-Semitic mother. Um, I was out in, in California, Nixon's hometown, and a, a guy comes up. I got to tell you a funny story. He said, uh, "You know, one day I, he said, I worked at a, a you know a wholesale grocery supply company, and I got a call from this woman. He said, my name is Mrs. Nixon, and don't you ever send that salesman to me again? Well, why not, Mrs. Nixon? She said, he's a Jew. He said, a Jew? I didn't know that." Thank you, Mrs. Nixon. So, of course, the guy she's talking to is a Jew. Right, right. And, and he made sure that only Jewish salesmen were sent to Mrs. Nixon. She actually got out of the business. But now you know why Richard Nixon's anti-Semitism came about naturally. My favorite Nixon quote, and this was recorded on his White House tapes, is where he turned to a friend of his in the Oval Office and said, You know, if I were to drop an atom bomb on Tel Aviv, there would still be American Jews stupid enough to vote for me. Wow. My and word. the guy was completely cynical. <laughs> uh, after but that... But that's what's fun about the intelligence files, because usually they're extremely reliable. It's hard to fake voice prints. Yeah? Where does that leave us now with Obama as a Muslim with regard to Israel and the Jews? Oh, it's... Wasn't born in Kenya. Um, the, the, what happened is, there's a little funny story. John McCain wasn't born in America. Okay, he was born in the Canal Zone. That's okay. They he, he could still run for president. But one of his dim-witted aides said, "Well, you know, we gotta, you know, uh, deflect this by saying that Obama wasn't born in America either." So they had uh, someone interviewed this 99-year-old woman who said, oh, I was there at his birth in Kenya. And she's talking about her son or her grandson. She's out of it. But that was the birth of the story that Obama was born in Kenya. And they even had a phony birth certificate. Turns out the birth certificate was actually from South Africa. And the owner claimed it. And the whole thing was exposed as a hoax. So, yeah, almost all. You know, there, there are a couple of good bipartisan websites. There's Snopes.com, UrbanLegend.com, and I, I would rely on their research. I think they're responsible people. Moving from uh, uh, Nixon into the Carter administration and the Camp David agreements negotiated by Carter, how does that square with uh, you know the attempts by the uh, various intelligence groups working ostensibly under Carter to undermine all of that? Yeah, it seems like we're going at uh, two different foreign policies at once. Um, I think it's amazing that the nation of Israel ever survived all of this nonsense. Uh, but you know, they're doing pretty good, and I think peace will come to the Middle East. I'm Irish, and we're optimistic. And after 400 years of fighting uh, Catholic versus Protestant, we're finally making peace in Northern Ireland. So I'm hopeful that uh, it can work out in the Middle East. I think if the people are left alone, but remember, terrorism is a very expensive industry. People don't fund it unless they get something out of it. And the ones that get something out of it have been the dictators. 
you know, the Irans, the Syrians, the, the Gaddafis in Libya, the Mubaraks in Egypt. And those are the guys that really put the big bucks into terrorism to justify the survival in office. Classic example, in Egypt, Mubarak licensed the Muslim Brotherhood, the old Nazi party, as his own illegal opposition group. And because he knew that they disgusted the Egyptian people so much, they would rather vote for him than vote for the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, I, I, I think if you look at the Arab-Israeli conflict, how the, the Jews and Arabs have been used uh, as bloody battering rams against each other, but ostensibly, I mean, a lot of this has been orchestrated from 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 outside. So if if the outside, oh, absolutely, that's why I'm, you know when when a lot of my friends talk about the UFOs and conspiracy theories, I feel really bad because the U.S. government has deliberately misinformed the public so much. Who is to know where the truth lies? You know, I, I think like with the UFO files, for example, I think I've got a pretty good idea because I read some of the files, but I was briefed on it. You know, so I, I think I know where all that stuff plays out. And uh, it, it had uh, you know I've got a Q clearance, which is what you need for nuclear weapons, atomic secrets. And another guy with a Q clearance, an old scientist, came up to me. And he said, "Did you know what the UFO files?" I said, "No, well, you know what's the briefing?" He said, "Well, at the end of World War II, we were very concerned that the Russians would try and develop an atomic bomb, and we came up with a way to find out what their progress was. So we we had these three-story tall." silver balloons. It was like the predecessor of Mylar. And we put Geiger counters and tape recorders on them. And we flew the balloons from California across the United States, across the Atlantic, over Russia, and they would come down the Pacific and we would collect the data package. And that's how we found out that the Russians were working on nuclear weapons. Until one landed in most top secret program. It was a Q clearance only. He said, but one day, one of the stupid balloons crashed in Roswell, mm. New Mexico. And I'm looking at him, he goes, yeah, true story. And um, so there's a whole crowd of people. There were farmers and, you know, l- you know local reporters and stuff. And, and, you know, the Army sent a young captain out. And the captain gets there. Here's this wreckage. There are pieces of the balloon all over the place. Luckily, it's hiding the Geiger counter and the recorder. And um, someone in the crowd looks at the half deflated balloon and said, it looks like a flying saucer. And that young captain had a great idea. He rounded up all of the scraps of, you know, the Mylar, and he told, spread the, the rumor that a flying saucer had crashed in Roswell, New Mexico, and the U.S. Army was covering it up. He deliberately spread the rumor that the U.S. Army was covering it up. And that's the story that ran the next day in many American newspapers. The Russians paid no attention to it whatsoever. So we kept flying the balloons over Russia until 1952 when we came up with the U-2 spy plane. Hmm. So, you know, this guy in the files I saw say, yeah, the the UFO story was the best weapons development cover-up we've ever had. We actually had a UFO factory in Canada. Its name is Avro Aviation, A-V-R-O. They have a website. And I think they still have photos on the website of little flying saucers they made for us. And that contract was taken over by the Pentagon. We used to buzz military and civilian aircraft uh, so they could say, yeah, I just saw a flying saucer. And these guys, you know, rock rib Republican, you know, and swearing that flying saucers existed. So it was a... 
you know, anyway, the, the, the military claims it was a great cover-up. When it finally ended, it was after the Iraq War, when all of a sudden Saddam lost all of his radar systems simultaneously to aircraft that were invisible to radar. He didn't know he had a whole fleet of stealth fighters. No one knew. Right, right. Because well, every time they were flying over America, we told people they were UFOs. But after the Iraq War, they were not all right, so no more of this stuff. So the Air Force actually confessed that the UFO sightings were a cover for a weapons development project. John, if I no knew, one believed it. If I knew we were going to get into the you know the uh, the UFO <laughs> issue with you, I, I, I would I have to book another show with you because this is uh, you know this is an area that I cover and I'm fascinated oh, with. And, and, and my uh, friends that love UFOs hate me for saying this, but as far as I can tell, and I'm not an expert, I only met this scientist and saw some of the files. But yeah, it kind of looks like it was just a good government con game. Well, I think that's the, I think that's definitely a part of the story, uh, John. But then you know, okay. if you go back to, uh, for, I mean, I, and I've talked to uh, aerospace uh, insiders who say, you know, uh, we're talking about these are not extraterrestrial; these are made in the good old USA, and I and I think that explains probably about ninety percent of the. You know the unidentified yeah. aerial phenomenon, but then if you go right. back, you know, to the 1800s, and you have that. Uh, oh well, that, to that absolutely. Yeah. there certainly wasn't any covert program there. No, so it began in 1947 in Roswell. That's where the. But where I, we had to cover up the balloon program. But I want to get back to uh, uh, to Israel, uh, 1948, a year after Roswell, and uh, again uh, talking about the the uh, attempts by uh, American intelligence and, and NSA to uh, just to make things really difficult uh, for Israel. Uh, we talked about uh, uh, Carter and Camp David uh, agreements. Now, uh, true or false, in uh, the early 80s, under the Reagan administration, the, the um, NSA was passing, this is the, the National Security Agency, was passing Israel's battle plans to the Arabs. Oh, yeah. We would let them know what Israel had with it. It was, it was Kissinger that actually told the Arabs that Israel only had three working nuclear warheads so they could risk attacking Israel in 1973, the Yom Kippur War. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, John, um, one of the interesting things during the break, I just want to remind, uh, bring out again, because you did a great job connecting some dots, and that was we were talking about the movie The... Um, the formula, which uh, was about uh, uh, hydrogenation plants, and uh, mm -hmm. Germany yeah. lost its oil supply, so did they make gas from coal? Um, and I asked you the question, where did they get their gas? Where did the Germans get their gasoline then? Well, two places. One was from Spain. That was the American connection. The other was the Saudi connection. The Saudis, you know, had shipped guns in the Third Reich before the war, and were, loved Hitler and were selling oil in. Roosevelt worked out a bribe. We would bribe the Saudis to cap their oil wells, to put cement on them, and just to shut down production during the war. That's why Saudi Arabia was the only neutral state ever to receive lend-lease assistance. Mm -hmm. So it was, was, it was a business. The World War II was a business. In part, yeah. And, and, and after the war, uh, my understanding is that at the close of the war, the, uh, the German army surrendered, but the Third Reich never did. Is that true? Yeah, well, I think it's true in the Arab context, because the Arab Nazi movement was never punished 
I mean, all of the people were let out of prison. Even the German handlers came back, and they became the fountainhead of what we call the Islamist movement today. But 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 in but inside Nazi Germany, for example, the Vice Chancellor who replaced Hitler actually never signed a surrender. No, that's not true. That's no. not true. Okay. No, that's not all true. Right. There really was a surrender document that the Navy, the German Navy signed. Yeah. Now, what about all that money and all the power of the Nazi international today? What uh, the, you know, when it broke up, it became Bayer Aspirin and BASF. You know, you raise a very good question. Let's take a break for two minutes. Let me come back to that. I want to pull some notes out here. Okay? Hey, John, not only are you a great guest, you're a great host throwing the breaks for me because we actually do owe us <laughs> do our sponsors a break. Thank you for that. John Loftus on the phone from Florida, the author of America's Nazi Secret, Nelson Thal in studio. My name is Richard Serrett. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You eat like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. And we are back with uh, John Loftus. John, uh, you're a terrific sport uh, for staying with us uh, for so long. I know that's, uh, you know, uh, talking uh, for two hours is... uh, uh, it can be draining, but uh, there's so much information here, uh, we're only skimming the surface, but uh, thank you again. John Loftus is uh, the author of America's Nazi Secret and Insider's History, and of course we're also discussing his 1994 uh, book, and that is The Secret War Against the Jews, How Western Espionage Betrayed the Jewish People. Nelson Thal is uh, with us in studio, media scientist, JFK assassination researcher, and uh, the man, of course, uh, the um, the other half of uh, Shock Talk with Bloom and Steel. Uh, obviously, we can't talk about uh, U.S.-Israeli uh, relations and uh, the uh, what was going on sort of behind the scenes without discussing uh, the uh, the USS uh, Liberty. Uh, this is uh, 19, 1967, the Six Day War. Israel essentially going it alone, abandoned by the UN. They're taking on uh, uh, Egypt, and in six days they pretty well mop up the uh, uh, the United uh, Arab Armies. Uh, and in the midst of this, the uh, the US warship, the USS Liberty. Uh, comes into Israeli waters and is attacked. The Israeli government immediately apologizes. The two countries remain friends, uh, firm as ever, ostensibly. But so much has been written about uh, that event. You have the uh, those opposed to uh, uh, is- the state of Israel saying, you see the, the duplicitousness uh, that they attacked uh, our uh, our own boys, and, and there were casualties aboard the USS Liberty. Uh, but explain what really happened, John. This is an amazing story. Um, and I, 
interviewed the British, American, and Israeli intelligence officials, and it's the first time that all three have agreed on the same version of events. Um, what happened is that on the first day of the Six-Day War, the Israeli Air Force destroyed the entire Egyptian Air Force on the ground because they'd always took their coffee break at the same time every morning. And the Egyptians were humiliated, and they wanted to blame someone, so they said it was the American Air Force flying off American aircraft carriers from the Sixth Fleet in the Mediterranean Sea that had destroyed all of the Egyptian planes and shot them out of the air. And Egypt called on all the Arab states to embargo oil sales to America. Now, Lyndon Johnson was an oil man from Texas. He knows the game was played. So he ordered the Sixth Fleet to withdraw more than 400 miles away out of strike range. And, uh, and he sent in a spy ship. The USS Liberty was stationed over in Rota, Spain. And the Liberty was the coast, uh, you know, up and down off the coast of Israel, like 13 miles offshore, to record all of the faint little sounds from Israeli uh, Jeep radios and tank radios and personnel radios, because the Israeli army, having won on the front, was getting ready to send its logistics forces northwards to prepare for the attack on the Golan Heights. Now, the uh, Israelis discovered very quickly, because they had a spy on the Egyptian general staff, that the American spy ship, the Liberty, was giving all of Israel's secret communications directly to the Egyptian war room. And Israel knew if this kept up that they would hemorrhage tens of thousands of soldiers. Uh, America was spying on Israel's enemy in time of war. And uh, they really had no choice. Uh, the Israeli cabinet met. They postponed the attack in the north for 24 hours while they debated what to do. But they ended up sending a courier, because they couldn't trust their phones because the Liberty was out there. They sent a courier to the nearest Israeli air squadron and asked for volunteers to fly against an American ship. And half the squadron refused to fly. Two of the pilots that did attack the Liberty, by the way, were Americans, and one of them ended up in a, an insane asylum. It's still there, as last I know. But their job was, the first wave was to come in and buzz the ship so the American sailors would have time to run below decks and get out of harm's way. The second wave would come in with napalm to burn off the aluminum spy antennas on the top of the Liberty. No one would be harmed. The third wave would come in in torpedo boats, but they would only fire one torpedo precisely into the one watertight hold where the Liberty spy computer was. So, um... 90% of the American crew survived. It was the best the Israelis could do. But every piece of spy gear on the Liberty was knocked out. And then the Israelis called in the American intelligence liaison and told them what they had done to the Liberty and why. And you know what? Lyndon Johnson begged the Israelis to pretend that the attack on the Liberty was a mistake and that Johnson quietly reimbursed Israel for all the compensation it paid to the ship. Uh, the sad thing about this was when Liberty was hit, it called for a rescue from American warplanes, and the aircraft carrier actually launched American fighters to protect the, uh, the Liberty. Lyndon Johnson ordered the Admiral to call the planes back. So, yeah, that's the true story of what happened in the Liberty.
John, um, since the Jews know there is a conspiracy against them, and I don't want you to compromise their position by any chance, but can you give us some idea as to what they're doing in order to uh, protect themselves from that? You know what? It's a funny thing. Um, their feeling is as long as they are, you know, pretty much truthful with the American people, the American people will back them in the long run. So if you get a few corrupt politicians here and there, that's life. Um, and eventually, you know, the Israelis feel, and, and our CIA feels, that the only sure way to win the war on terrorism is to stop importing Arab oil. And because that's, that's where the Arabs get the money to pay for terrorism. And uh, so I think both the Israelis and we are exploring frantically um, uh, ways to come up with alternative energies to oil production. And we're a lot closer to success than people think. So do you feel there's any, um, the, the number of people, of course, talk about their worry about dual citizenship uh, uh, politicians like Ram Emanuel and Lieberman and other people in the American uh, system. Do you, do you feel that's something that does isn't a, a worry? Well, I'm Irish Catholic. Well, I, I really can't speak for them, but yeah, all of my 30 years of experience in the intelligence community and the and uh, privately, so, yeah, of course, that most Jews bend over backwards to prove that they're Americans first. They're among our most dedicated and loyal citizens. I don't have a problem with them. Uh, can you t say a little bit, uh, a couple, uh, Daniel Ellsberg, not Daniel Ellsberg, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, uh, I, Pollard, I don't like, I don't Pollard, like Pollard. Daniel Ellsberg, I don't like no, no, uh, I, I meant Pollard, Jonathan Pollard. What's happening? What's the story there? Well, I met with Jonathan several times in prison. Let me just one of the few guys that know the whole story. If I could just interject, because yeah, people sorry, who Richard. aren't familiar with yeah. Jonathan Pollard, this is so the Jonathan uh, Pollard is a young, stupid American kid who thought he'd be a knight in a white horse and spy for Israel while he was working inside American intelligence. He caused enormous amount of embarrassment. He didn't do anything to harm national security. Everybody agrees to that now, but the embarrassment factor was huge. So. Pollard is the only spy ever to receive a life sentence, and he'll probably serve every day of it. Uh, it's really sad because, essentially, he was a 14-year-old kid trying to do the right thing. We were, you know, we were doing nasty things to Israel again. We were, uh, yeah. The Syrian government had anti-aircraft batteries. America had the real frequencies and access codes necessary for Israeli fighter planes to swoop between them. We gave Israel false codes. And Paul said, why are we doing that? They didn't know he was a Jew. And I said, hey, listen, they'll lose a few planes. They'll figure it out. They were trying to even the score with the Arabs. So Paul got furious and started giving, you know, lots of stupid secret files. But uh, Interesting. But, but, but was... When Pollard was, I mean, he was accused of leaking these satellite photos, were any of those at all beneficial to Israel's launch against the Iraqi nuclear uh, facility? No, actually, not, not at all. That came from an open source, the little uh, American Jewish contractor in New York, and uh, he would actually go into all the Arab countries and bid on construction jobs. And the Israeli government gave him a Canadian passport, and uh, he was the one that came up. He went into Baghdad and 
put in, saw the blueprints for the Osorak reactor, and he bid on the job. So he was able to take a copy of the blueprints of Osorak back to the Israelis and say, well, this is where you want a bomb. Go to this side. Go hit this side. So, yeah, it was a little uh, Jewish businessman, a contractor, who walked into Saddam Hussein's office and said, show me the blueprints. I want to bid in the job. Um, sure. Pollard had nothing to do with it. He didn't have... You know, Pollard has so little access. Mm-hmm. It's scary. He didn't even... I went through all his files and backtracked a lot. He didn't even have the right security clearance called Flashboard to get into the file room where the files of American and British agents behind the Iron Curtain were kept. But, they were, but what happened is there really were two spies, one the CIA, one uh-huh. the FBI, that worked for Russia. Mm-hmm. And the Russians said, the Americans are getting close to you guys. Let's use Pollard as the scapegoat. And they framed Pollard. They said Pollard gave his information to Israel. It could leak back to Russia. That's how we lost all of our American and British spies all at once in the same year. And, uh, you know, it was, it was all a hoax. And uh, Pollard had nothing to do with it. And it was only, and the, but the, the two real spies kept on spying. And one was Aldrich Ames in the CIA, that was uh, Hansen in the FBI. They did an enormous amount of damage. Okay? But, uh, the intelligence agencies were too embarrassed to admit that they were totally suckered in by the Russians and in throwing the book at Pollard. Because Pollard was just the poor victim the Russians picked out as their cover star. Uh, John, the um, uh, Sherman Skolnick, the late great American judge buster out of Chicago, he pointed out that Leah Rabin in her book, The Widow Rabin, mentioned that her husband was in Dealey Plaza on November 22nd, 63. That couldn't have been just a, a coincidence. Um, is there a Mossad connection to the JFK assassination? No, not a bit. I mean, I love JFK, and believe me, I turned over a lot of rocks. And as far as I can tell, you know, you had this wacko who uh, defected from uh, a secret American base in Japan to the Russians, and the Russians thought he was so wacko that they wanted him to leave. They threw him out, and he took his Russian wife with him and left. And nobody wanted him. The guy was a clown. He was a mentally defective. Now, Oswald was not an important guy at all, and I'm afraid that uh, the only good thing you could say about him was the Marine Corps trained him well, but and I was an expert shot in the Army. I could have made that shot against Kennedy several times. John, uh, I want to move ahead to um, Israel joining the um, the nuclear, uh, the atomic club, let's say, and, and uh, you know, people have been... Uh, oh, good question. Pretty harsh, uh, you know, against Israel for for they claim fueling the the Middle East arms race. So we'll set the record straight on that, if you will. Oh yeah, the Israelis have always said we're not going to be the first to produce atomic weapons in the Middle East. A lot of people don't realize that the Saudis have had them. Okay, that the Russians put atomic weapons into Syria. All right, the Russians tried to invade Iran in 1947, and Harry Truman chased them out with under threat of nukes. So the Russians brought the nuclear weapons in first and gave them to the Russian puppet states in the Arab world. And people forget that Saddam Hussein's government was a puppet state, and Syria was a puppet state of Russia. You know, uh, 
those those are the facts of life, boys and girls. So Israel said, you know, we've got to get a nuclear weapon as a deterrent. And what they did was they um, had a very the Israelis are funny. In, in their, they because of uh, Auschwitz and the Holocaust, they bend over backwards to fight humane wars. I've always thought that's a contradiction in terms that when America goes to fight a war, we just go in and kill everybody. But the Israelis are very choosy about they try not to kill civilians or kill women. But so they invented the environmentally friendly atomic bomb. It's called a neutron bomb. And um, when the neutron bomb goes off, it'll kill Syrian tank drivers inside the tanks, but leave the tanks untouched. Leave the crops standing inedible. Leave the houses standing. It only kills with an intense blast of radiation. But the only place that Israel could ever use the neutron bomb without killing Israelis is behind the Golan Heights, behind the, the mountains. And uh, so the Syrians know that Israel has the neutron bomb, and so there'll never be another Syrian tank invasion of Israel. What's happening is that Israel is getting nibbled to death with all these little homemade rockets. Uh, you know, that they, and granted, ninety-five percent of them just fly off and crash in the desert or in someone's backyard. But what's sick is, like in Gaza, they only fire the rockets at in early mornings and early afternoons when the kids' school buses are running because they want to hit a school bus. That's sick. Uh-huh. It's a it's a war crime to target civilian neighborhoods, and they are targeting Israeli schools and Israeli school buses with firing at that time. Uh, I, I want to go back to uh, Israel's decision to, to to build its first a bomb. You 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 write that it was motivated in part by the resurgence of former fascists in Western countries, particularly in the political political campaign staffs of Richard Nixon. Oh God, yeah. I mean Nixon. Had uh, he told uh, his uh, uh, George H. W. Bush was the co-chair of the Republican National Committee, and because uh, Nixon had promised all the Eastern European Nazi groups that if they successfully got him to run for president, he'd let them be part of the Republican National Committee, and that was Bush's job to bring them in. And a, uh, a friend of mine, Russ Ballant, did a wonderful monograph for the unions on all the Nazis that worked for the Republican Ethnic Heritage Outreach Program. And they actually put them on the, the, the payroll. It was shocking. I mean, um, and the, the Republicans would warn their candidates not to go near the Croatian community on April 10th because that's when they celebrated the day that the Nazi government of Croatia was formed, things like that. Uh, John, if you were Israel, how would you use the nuclear technology, uh, the the clean bombs, the neutron bombs, et cetera, in order to um, uh, neutralize your your opposition? The only time that Israel ever used them was in the 73 war, the big sneak attack. Kissinger sabotaged Israel by withholding all American intelligence information that the war was coming. And when Israel found on its own anyway the day before, Kissinger called up Golomir and told her, keep your troops, you know, at home. Um, don't mobilize the army. This time you must let the Arabs fight first shot, fire the first Kissinger wanted to get, uh, you know, on the good side with the Arabs, and he wanted to force Israel into a position to, you know, sign a peace treaty that would keep the Arabs happy and keep the oil flowing. Do you, do you see us at a point coming up where Israel will use, uh, have to be escalated? No, no. Have to escalate all, all, all that ever happened was that Israel 
put nuclear weapons on its planes and roll the fighter planes out to the end of the runway because, you know, Kissinger's sabotage of Israeli resupply was so severe, it almost crushed the nation of Israel. But Israel now has the bomb, does it not? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's got about, uh, depending on who you believe, between 100 and 300 nuclear weapons. Small stuff, tactical stuff. Suitcase, suitcase nukes, yeah. Suitcase or just on missiles? No, no, just on missiles. Guys, there is no such thing as a suitcase bomb, all right? The closest the Russians ever came was a giant steamer trunk-sized bomb, okay? And the steamer trunk had to have its components replaced every six months or it became a radioactive paperweight. There is no knapsack bomb. There is no suitcase bomb. All right, John, one uh, final time out. We'll come back, and a few questions remain uh, for you as we discuss America's Nazi secret, along with Nelson Thal. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show on the new AM740 Zuma Radio. John Loftus stays with us. A few moments uh, remain, and Nelson Thal in studio as we discuss America's Nazi past and, of course, the secret war against the Jews. John is a former U.S. government prosecutor, former Army intelligence officer, and... Uh, president of the Intelligence Summit, also president of the Florida Holocaust Museum. John, you, you characterize the, uh, the period from uh, 48 to 73 as the age of greed, uh, and then from 74 to 92, you call that the age of stupidity. Explain. Well, you can almost understand these horrible people that wanted to make money off both sides of World War II and both sides of the Cold War. But what happened afterwards was just stupid. You know, the reason, no offense, I'm not a conspiracy thing, is that my experience has taught me that 90% of the stuff that happens in the world is stupidity. 10% is conspiracy. And people won't accept that. They won't say, come on, you're telling me that the federal government is so stupid as to make the same mistakes that we made 50 years ago in the exact same way. And I say, yeah, that's (laughs) stupid. And we do. You know? I mean, we have the Muslim Brotherhood. We have two U.S. agencies, my own Justice Department, which embarrasses me, and our State Department, that are still trying to fund the Muslim Brotherhood as, a, as an American counterweight. Now, the Muslim Brotherhood was Hitler's army and then Russia's army, when it was controlled by Kim Philby, and then uh, worked for the Alan Dulles and uh, his crazy little spy group and then worked for George Bush uh, to hire the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. I mean, this is a group of people that will always sell you out. They work for the highest bidder. You know, if they have any ideology, it is the exact same as Hitler. Um, you know, and, and if their founder wrote letters to Hitler praising him. And their motto was, in heaven, Allah, on earth, Hitler. John, if somebody was stupid enough to blow up the Dome of the Rock and claim that it was an American missile that did it, what would be the repercussions in the United States? Oh, boy, you've hit upon a war game strategy. And uh, see, the, but the, the full uh, strategy that I talked about uh, with some people was uh, if they um, kidnapped a bunch of Orthodox Jews, uh-huh. put them next to a... Uh, uh, a, uh, a small artillery piece up on top of uh, the hill opposite, and just fired rounds into it, and then killed the Jews and left them at the, the gun. Uh-huh. You know, then yeah. the Arab world would say, oh, the Jews, what the dumb of the rock. You know, the sad thing is, yeah. uh, 
the Dome of the Rock isn't what people think it is. Okay? Okay. All right. The holy site for the Jews is about 80 feet behind and 20 feet to the left. There's a little four-pillared column that's where you can see some of the bare rock. That's the, the Islamic, Islamist guys call it the, the Mosque of the Winds. That's where the Holy of Holies stood. The, okay. Would you call that the Dome of the Tablets? No, the Mosque of the Winds. The Mosque of the Winds. It's a little tiny thing. You can see it on the Google Maps and all that stuff. It's four pillars with a little tiny cupola, maybe three feet across. And it's the only bare stone that's open to the light. So they could build an altar there and start the sacrifices again. Right, and that is exactly in line with one of the gates that says the entrance to the Holy of Holies was there. With the... Dome of the Rosk is, is um, that's St. Nicosia's. There was an eight-sided Christian church there. And that was built on top of the altar site of the Jews. So the altar site was obviously not inside the Holy of Holies. Okay? Right. And, and um, so the eight, the eight walls of the St. Nicosia's remained, and the Arabs put the Golden Dome on top. But when was the Arab mosque built in Jerusalem. Trivia question. It, what, you mean the Al-Aqsa Mosque or yeah, the Dome well, of the Rock? Because the Dome of the Rock... Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. The Dome of the Rock was built when? It's, it's the Caliph of Omar. It was about 600 A.D., 630 A.D. Yeah, good man. You get a gold star. Thank you, John. So when Muhammad had his night journey and he rode his horse overnight... He was still a Catholic church. Mosque. Yeah. It couldn't have been in Jerusalem because that mosque didn't exist yet. It was still a Catholic church. That's right. And so the furthest mosque was he created his night journey from Medina to Mecca. And, you know, that's a horse ride away. That's perfectly logical. Now, when the Palestinians invented the myth that Barak the magic horse was a flying horse that landed in Jerusalem, and that this was the furthest mosque, the rest of the Arab world laughed at them. What are you talking about? There wasn't even a mosque there. It was only the second caliph who came to Jerusalem for the first time, and he made them clear the rubble away and made them stop mistreating them. The Roman law was that the residents of Jerusalem had to dump their, their garbage on the Temple Mount. And there was this one little Christian church, St. Nicosia, there. And, uh, and that was it. So he, you know, he was the guy that cleared off the thing and had them build you know, the lovely golden, which is the oldest continuing religious structure in the world. Let's give the Muslims credit for that. Okay, there is no church anywhere in the world older than the, the uh, Al-Aqsa. Your, thought, uh, your thoughts on uh, the two-state solution, John? You know, I think that the Jews are the only ones that want a two-state solution. I hate to say this, and I love the Palestinian people. Every time I go to Israel, uh, my wife and I always go in the Palestinian areas, and they're so kind to us and so nice. And the Palestinian people are very different from their leaders. The Palestinian people say, look, we don't want Jewish extremists. We don't want Arab extremists. We just want the tourists back. We want jobs for our kids. They're human beings like the rest of us. But you know what? Their leaders are being paid by Iran before they were paid by Iraq, before then they were paid by Saudi Arabia. The political leaders are always paid off to betray the Palestinian people. So what's going to happen for the next 20 years? I think nothing. Israel will finish, you know, building up that separation barrier 
I think, you know, I thought at first it would only be good for cutting down on car thieves, but it really does have a huge impact on cutting back on terrorism. I was totally wrong on that. And, but it cuts back on something else. Interaction. In the old days, 70% of Palestinian families depended upon jobs in Israel for their economic survival. Once that separation wall is finished, that's it. The Palestinian populations of Gaza and the West Bank are going to dry up, and they're going to move back to Egypt and Jordan. And the king of Jordan knows this. That's why he's furious that the wall is being built, because he knows all those people are going to come back to his welfare camps. John, I've always been a sort of, you know, Israel right or wrong, uh, that kind of guy. But I mean, it, it, it is hard sometimes, uh, given when you look at the plight of the uh, of Palestinians, uh, some of them in the refugee camps. What are your thoughts on that? You know, refugee camps exist because the Arab world wants them to. They want Israel to be the boogeyman. And, you know, if you want to have peace in the Middle East and Israel, it'll happen tomorrow the Israelis would be happy to let the Palestinians vote on where the border goes. Let each Palestinian family choose, I want to be an Israeli, I want to be a Palestinian. The Palestinians will never allow that vote to be taken because a huge portion of Palestinians would vote immediately to become Israelis. Israel is the only place where an Arab child can go all the way through graduate school and the Arabs don't have to serve in the Israeli army unless they volunteer. The Druze Arabs do. Um, and women, Israel is the only place where uh, Arab women are free to vote and run for office. Um, the, the health rate and literacy rate among Israeli Arabs is the highest in the Arab world. Second highest is the Palestinians because Israel provides free medical care. So the myth of the oppression of the Palestinians is a myth. I mean, Israel doesn't have Gaza as a concentration camp. Egypt, another Muslim state, closes the border with Gaza because these guys are nutcases that, you know, will come in and bomb their fellow Muslims, which they've done repeatedly. Uh, John, um First of all, it's just wonderful uh, having you on here to bring your treasury wisdom, and it's been just great. Thank you. Uh, and you guys are good sports. Uh, I know I kind of tease you a little bit about the conspiracy uh, stuff. But understand, I'm an old-fashioned prosecutor by training and inclination. Well, i got to have the evidence. We are interested in state secrets uh, <laughs> rather than conspiracies. <laughs> yeah. But let me just, before you, um, a couple of quickies. Dr. Kelly, was he murdered in order to cover up the fact that weapons of mass destruction was just a, a lie? No. Uh, in fact, everybody got the weapons of mass destruction story wrong. Uh, in, in 10 seconds, Saddam did destroy a quarter of his stuff. He sold a quarter of his stuff to the neighboring Arab states. A quarter he shipped off the border into Syria, which the Israelis bombed two years ago. Another quarter was still inside Iraq when the war ended. Everybody got the story around. So why didn't George Bush, if he had it, bring it out and, and show it on, on TV? His own State Department sat on the records. We actually had oh, guys that... So he never knew it. He never knew it. I had a guy put this stuff in the inbox of the president, right? This is like a month before I left the office. And his staff said, oh, my God, we never saw this stuff. 
they never saw it. Oh, wow. That's... <laughs> well, that's and, the know, stupidity, the right? right? That's, is, that's the, what you mean by the age of stupidity. Yeah, you know, my, I have a very right-wing friend, Ken Timmerman, and um, he wrote a book about how state and CIA betrayed Bush, and there's more than a bit of truth in it. And I'm not a Bush fan. I'm a Democrat, okay? But... Uh-huh. Uh, it's uh, there was just so many lies going on, and I think the lies have to stop. We've just got to level with people and tell them the truth. I make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. That's different. Intentional lies have to stop. John, it's uh, been a great pleasure spending the last two hours with you. And uh, can you give us a, a, a website? Uh, we you know, ha- I, you know, honestly, I don't have one right now. The book is called America's Nazi Secret. You can get it at Amazon or from your local bookstore, and it was something that's been censored out of all my books for 30 years. So if it wasn't true, the government wouldn't have censored it out. What's and, it, and the Bolero Secret. No, America's Nazi Secret. Yeah, and also the the, you're also the author of the Bolero Secret and... And Holy Trinity, Trinity, the Vatican, the Nazis, and the Swiss banks, the secret war against the Jews, uh, the witness tree about how the state of Israel was really formed, and a few others. What's next? I'm thinking of doing a book called Just Shoot the Veterans. And it's going to be a true true history uh, of how the American VA treats its disabled veterans. And I'm one. I'm I'm up for, I may hear uh, next week whether I'm going to be a 100% disabled veteran. And God help the poor kids coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, because there are third world countries that give better medical care to its citizens that America gives to its disabled. Well, there's a book that needs to be written, and uh, you're just the man to do it, John. Thank you for that. And thank you for this. John Loftus. Nelson Thal, thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. It's been most enlightening, and I look forward to doing it again. Thanks a lot. All right. And uh, Nelson and uh, the lovely Miss Steele can be heard when? Uh, uh, They can go anytime to the archives at bloominsteel.com and just click on the Shock Talk show and it'll take them right to the archives. Excellent. All right. My thanks uh, to Dan Ellison. Uh, Next week on the program, Rosemary Ellen Guiley will be here with another paranormal investigation. Mark Owen, uh, first timer to the program, will be here with a fascinating story uh, about what happened to Lincoln's assassin, John Wilkes Booth. And um, we'll also uh, check in with, uh, let me see, oh, uh, Dr. Bill Gibbons has a brand new book out about uh, the Mokeli Mbembe, this creature he's been tracking in the Congo. So that's all part and parcel of next week's show. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Happy birthday to you. Hey, where's mom going? She hasn't even opened her presents. Well, son, she just turned 65, which means there's new offers for her at Specsavers. What? Yep, an eye exam now costs her nothing, and she can get 30% off lens upgrades with any pair of glasses. Wow. So, can we cut the cake now? You betcha. No-cost eye exams are for eligible seniors at all participating locations with costs covered by provincial health care. Conditions apply. See specsavers.ca.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.